Best of Times, live from 710 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity, helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The Best of Times, your host, Gary Kaligas. Good morning, radio listeners. I'm Gary Kaligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only magazine and radio show for mature adults in Northwest Louisiana. I do thank you for listening to our show today and also thanking those who might be listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com. Also thanking those who might be listening via the Keel application on their Apple or Android devices. We do thank AARP Louisiana neighbors and country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer for being the exclusive sponsors of this show radio show to provide you with beneficial information each and every Saturday morning. In just a few minutes, we're going to learn about the myths and facts about urological problems in men and women. So stay to the show for some very interesting and beneficial information for you and your loved ones. It is Saturday, June the 10th, and we are broadcasting our show from the studios of News Radio 710 Keel, a town square media station here in Shreveport, Louisiana. However, today's show has been pre-recorded, so we will be unable to accept calling questions and comments from our loyal radio listeners. Be sure to pick up the June issue, the best of times, at one of our 270 distribution locations. We do appreciate hearing from you. Remember, if you're unable to find a printed copy at one of our 270 distribution locations, please remember you can always visit our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com to view both current and past issues for the for the past eight years or on our website. In addition, you can listen to previously broadcast radio shows here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. In addition, you can view and download the 2023 Silver Pages. Again, visit our website, but hopefully you'll find a printed copy of one of our at one of our 270 distribution locations. Our friends at Ernest Arlene's offers again the Best of Times special dinner each and every Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to closing with fabulous meals at a highly discounted price for seniors, of course, $25. It is highly recommended due to the very popular popularity of this Thursday night special to make advanced reservations by calling 318-226-1325. Again, it's important that you make advanced reservation, but because showing up, you might have to have a very long wait before you will be seated on that Thursday. We'll be right back with more information, but now we're with my sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by AERP Louisiana and Abares, tenant country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Gary Kaligas will be right back with more Best of Times Radio Hour after this on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Gary's back with more Best of Times Radio Hour on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by AERP Louisiana and Abers, tenant country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is a very special guest, is Dr. Alexander Gomelsky, who is with the LSU Oster Regional Urology here in Shreveport, and I've asked him to come on our show to discuss the various myths and facts about urological problems in men and women. Thank you, doctor, for taking time to be on our show today. Thank you, Gary. Great to be here. So I want to mention transparency to all of my radio show listeners. I am a patient of Dr. Alexander here. 
Gomensky, and I want to compliment him on really taking care of me very professionally and and uh, and taking care of all of my urological needs, which were done very successfully. Thank you for your for your great care, sir. Absolutely. So let's start off. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about urinary tract infection. So. What's what's the what's the issue here? Is it a kidney infection, a bladder infection? Are they the same thing? Well, it's a very common misconception. So your kidneys are attached to your bladder, and so the kidneys make the urine and they send it into the bladder. But they're located in two different places. Your kidneys are uh, in what's called your flank area, which is uh, underneath your ribs, kind of in the upper back, while your bladder's in the front, uh, uh, low in your pelvis. And a lot of people think that when they have urinary symptoms, it's a kidney infection. Right. But the two tend to be quite different. The symptoms are very different. Kidney infections tend to be very severe. Uh, Fever, chills, people feel very sick, uh, along with some urinary symptoms like burning. While bladder infections are more annoying, uh, a little (laughs) more burning, uh, urgency to urinate, frequency, maybe a little blood to the urine. And... uh, Typically less severe than kidney infections, so the two are quite different. So they are they they, they, we, they are quite different, but people think they're they they try to diagnose themselves, correct? Exactly, exactly. So why do women get more infectious uh, urinary tract infections? Well, a lot of that is uh, mainly due to uh, what I would call their plumbing. Uh, <laughs> women typically. Uh, will have a very short urine channel of only a couple of inches that separates their bladder from the outside world. And the area where the urine channel empties, the vaginal area and the rectal area, typically have a lot of bacteria. So those bacteria can travel occasionally up that short channel and get into the bladder and cause mischief. In men, the urine channel is quite long. Uh, Part of it is in the penis, obviously, and then there's a, a second part that's equally as long inside the body. So you're talking about a much longer uh, urine channel, and men will get infections in different ways than women will. So they do. Somebody was telling me years ago that, you know, you, you won't get a urinary tract infection. Well, that's in men, but you do. You can, there's a possibility of getting bacteria, right? Absolutely. And uh, that's exactly right. Uh, men will just get infections in slightly different ways. It may come from the prostate or some other structures, or maybe even from the blood but definitely won't come uh, sort of upwards kind of from the vaginal area like it does in women. So what's the best way to check the urine, my urine level? Well, this is also another um, common misconception. Um, the, <laughs> the urine office test, often called a dipstick, is, ca- is kind of how people get their urine checked the first time. And the dipstick is very easy to do. In fact, there are home kits you can buy where you can do it at home. And the, uh, the test is as easy as placing a special strip of paper in the urine. It will change colors and give you a suspicion of either blood or some other indications of infection. Unfortunately, the dipstick is often falsely positive. Uh, mm. It can be positive with just a contaminated urine, uh, meaning that it ran over the skin or something like that. Uh, so it's not a clean catch. And it doesn't give us any additional information about Uh, whether there are bacteria there, how many bacteria, and what the best antibiotic would be to use for that particular bacteria. And that information can only be obtained in what's called a culture, where the urine is sent to the lab for a couple of days. So that tends to be the most important 
thing to check when we're treating infections. Okay, so here's a follow-up question. People occasionally, this could be a myth, could be fact. If somebody looks at tests their urine and it's dark color, you must be something wrong with you. How, how do you answer that? So the uh, what I tell my patients is to think of the urine uh, as uh, your body's main way of getting rid of waste. So again, your kidneys are responsible for filtering your blood from all the extra waste and fluid that the body no longer needs. And that's what winds up in the urine. And so the urine can take on uh, different colors and actually different smells based on what your body is eliminating at that time and how well hydrated you are. So the smell and the look of the urine may not give you necessarily uh, idea if there's infection or not, or maybe you're just dehydrated and the urine is um, the urine is dark, or maybe you had asparagus or one of the other foods uh, that can true. give a, a smell true. to the urine. Didn't think about that. Yes, asparagus. Okay. So do all infections require antibiotics? So that's another really great question. So it used to be thought that any bacteria in the urine was bad and that the urine was sterile and that we should eliminate any type of bacteria, whether they're causing symptoms or not. As we've learned more and more about the bladder and and bladder health, we found out a couple of interesting things. Uh, First of all, not all bacteria are necessarily bad, which brings into question whether (laughs) the urine has to be sterile or not. Oh. Um, so it, we're finding out more and more that actually the bladder may have its own environment where some bacteria will thrive but not cause any symptoms, and they may be left alone. We also know that uh, in women, and like we said, women get more infections than men, when they're postmenopausal, it is quite acceptable for them to have some bacteria in the urine, and maybe those bacteria are treated kind of like nice visitors, They're not causing any problems. (laughs) They're not hurting the woman. And we would typically, in those women, leave those bacteria alone rather than trying to eliminate them uh, because the concern is that frequent antibiotics could cause resistance to antibiotics in the future. And um, one of these days, a woman may actually need some antibiotics down the line, and we want to have as many options as possible. And and mention that to our listeners. People think that everything I I get an illness, I need to take an antibiotic. And... Tell them the reason why. You just mentioned it, but emphasize that. Absolutely, uh, Gary. Uh, You know, antibiotics are obviously good. They are strong. They do fairly well. The problem is that your body over time could get used to antibiotics and will not be as responsive to them down the line. The other thing I tell all my patients is that when you think about it, over the last couple of decades the amount of new antibiotics introduced has been relatively small while the amount of new bacteria and stronger bacteria that are out there has risen exponentially. So in some ways, we're kind of losing the fight against uh, the bacteria. They are, they're they're winning the battle here. (laughs) Um, So we really should be very judicious about our antibiotic use. And so I will very much preach when men or women, well, mainly women, when they come in with urinary symptoms, the urgency frequency, we start out with simple things, maybe some antispasm medicine, maybe more fluids, and really try to see if we can handle some of the symptoms without antibiotics, or at least wait on the antibiotics until we get a culture back so we know what we're treating. Which, specifically in that area. So what about the use of I mean, you? Um, this is the that those tales. I think I've been asking you this when I visited you. Uh, 
drinking cranberry juice, taking probiotics, does that help? Uh, the, the, the short answer is we don't know. Oh, uh, but no research on those two. You think the cranberry industry would be doing some, but they're probably not, huh? So interesting enough, there actually has been quite a bit of research, but it's been conflicting. Uh, there are some studies that say that you do get a benefit from cranberry juice, uh, and the thought is that the, the active ingredient in, in the cranberry juice or cranberries helps to keep certain bacteria from sticking to the inside of the bladder. Uh-huh. Uh, keeping in mind that once you have an infection, the cranberry juice does nothing. So it's really <laughs> a preventative measure. And there's a lot of controversy out there about how much cranberry juice is, oh. is important uh, to use. Uh, and the uh, if you're just drinking the ocean spray stuff, the regular cranberry juice, you might have to be drinking a lot of it. Because it's diluted, right? It's not pure. Correct. And it also has a lot of sugar in it. So uh, if you have diabetes, you might want to be <laughs> real careful with that. Um, the probiotics and, and some of the other treatments, they may change the the pH or some of the, the, the vaginal kind of area a little bit to maybe dissuade some bacteria from sticking around. Uh, again, uh, I don't have a problem with people trying them just knowing full well that they may not be the uh, the end all and be all that they're looking for okay what about preventive strategies in, in avoiding getting urinary tract infections absolutely uh, I think the most important thing is to what I call cycling your bladder which means not holding your bladder too long and I think that's just good for all of us as we get older you know, have almost uh, kind of like a schedule. It's been a couple, three hours, and uh, don't wait till your bladder gets too full. Go ahead and empty it regularly. That will mean that even if bacteria get into the bladder, you are eliminating them on a regular basis. Uh, some of the other things I, I've heard uh, kind of are, are some urban <laughs> myths about uh, <laughs> avoiding bubble baths or different types of underwear, uh, and those are just that. They are... Uh, uh, they are urban myths. Uh, if if a man or woman enjoys their bubble baths, I say absolutely. Keep doing them. Wear whatever types of underwear are comfortable to you. Um, but it doesn't have any therapeutic preventative purposes. They no, sure. sir. None that we know of. What, what about Epsom soft baths and those people that heavily take those kind of baths with salts? The salts don't doesn't react or attack the bad bacteria? We don't have any evidence to suggest they do, and so I usually tell people, hey, whatever types of bath you enjoy, if this is, uh, I think, the, you know, the benefits of the bath the outweigh the risks, absolutely go for it. So, so when is an infection serious? Uh, well, definitely a kidney infection is a serious infection, and, and kind of like I mentioned before, uh, it's the significant flank pain, you know, pain in the upper back. It's the fever, chills, uh, not feeling well. That's an infection that should be diagnosed and uh, and may even need require or may even require hospital uh, admission with some stronger antibiotics at least initially. Uh, certainly, if there are symptoms, uh, urinary symptoms, and the bacteria are multi-drug resistant, um, then. That's an infection that we may need to uh, focus a little bit more on on getting rid of so as well. what's the indication if it gets worse? I mean, the, the, the pain factor or there's other indications? Really, the, the big things we look for are, are instability. So we're looking oh, for instant. fever, chills. We're looking for somebody who doesn't feel well. Uh, that could indicate that uh, 
they are getting pretty sick, especially uh, especially as we all get older and we develop some other health issues uh, that puts us at greater risk for getting sicker. And uh, and you know you hate to use the word sepsis, but that's always on our oh. brains. Um, so we'd like to uh, act before that. That's that's important. So let's go into urinary incontinence in women. So is it its normal process of getting older for women? Well, I wouldn't call it normal. Uh, I, it, um, you know, anytime you wet your pants, I would hate to, <laughs> hate to call that normal. But I think a lot of women um, expect that that's a normal part of getting older because um, there are certain things that happen in life that could predispose you to losing some control of the urine. Uh, definitely uh, uh, pregnancies. Um, and and having babies could weaken some of the pelvic muscles, which can bring on some leakage. And also getting older uh, just by itself will induce some changes in the bladder that can give you more overactive bladder symptoms like urgency and frequency. So while it's more common, it's not necessarily normal. So so I want to ask this interesting uh, question of you. I've noticed there's been an increase on television, on both cable, et cetera, about incontinence products. Absolutely. Is, is the incident increased throughout the world? Is that why they're really focusing now on that? Well, it's a, it, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Oh. And uh, I think... You're probably seeing the um, the products advertised more because there has been some <clears throat> there um, there's been some data that has emerged over the last few years about maybe some of the procedures having uh, some side effects uh, and also maybe some of the medications having um, having side effects and so uh, I think they're giving uh, patients an option uh, to you maybe not have either one of those done, but just use absorbent products, whether they're diapers or pads or things like that. So again, but it's a, it's a huge industry. So I'm not surprised that we're seeing a lot of uh, advertising for but, it. But tell our listeners, because that's what I, uh, is it, it, it affects all ages. It doesn't just affect older women, women and older men, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, we'll start, we'll start seeing, uh, symptoms often, uh, it could be as uh, in, in the 20s and 30s after women begin having uh, children, again, with some of the muscle weakness that they may have. So so it's definitely, it's not unique to uh, to older men and women. Now, again, men have a little different plumbing. They have uh, slightly different risk factors, obviously, uh, for their leakage. Uh, but, uh, but no, we can see it in uh, people of all ages. So is all incontinence the same? That's one of the misnomers here absolutely yeah so so again leakage can be um, due to a couple of different big categories so um, on one hand we have what's called urge leakage and an urge is that desire to urinate that you can't postpone so you're doing fine one moment next moment you gotta go gotta go and by the time you get to the bathroom you've lost control and wet yourself and that is called urge leakage or urge incontinence and that is treated in one way. And then you have something called stress leakage or stress incontinence. And stress is another word for pressure. So when you increase your tummy pressure by coughing, sneezing, laughing, running, jumping, standing, or even changing positions, and that causes leakage without urgency, that's called stress leakage. And that's usually due to some weak muscles or maybe some weak valves that can't keep you from leaking. And that's treated in a different way. 
Okay. So let's uh, talk about. So let me ask you one um, a medical question here. <laughs> I hate to say self-diagnosed. What happens when an individual, when they get older, the cold weather tends to make me want to go more? Absolutely. Why, why is that? So again, uh, it's it's not a completely uh, understood phenomenon, but cold weather and running water tend to be those um, yes. those stimulants for the urgency, which kind of have you uh, run and uh, and use the but bathroom. In, but in warm weather, it's just the opposite. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems like it just you, you can know, hold it forever. I, I, that's <laughs> right. But in cold weather, at least Gary, and I will tell all our listeners, it tend I tend to uh, want to go more frequently. And I don't leak, but I want to go more frequently. It's weird. Not unusual. Okay, not unusual. I thought it was. I was going to ask you that. I said, hey, might as well tell. Might as well tell the hundred thousand people out there. But Gary's <laughs> problems here. So, how do we treat this medically? By pills, by techniques, treatments, etc. Absolutely. So, so the the good thing is uh, is that there are different treatments, and there are lots of treatments. So the main thing is obviously is, is diagnosing the specific type of leakage that, uh, that a person has. And if they have what we call the urge leakage, the gotta go, gotta go leakage, um, I compare it to an electrical problem. It's a miscommunication between bladder and brain. Um, typically they're on the same wavelength, but if they're not, then the bladder will act without checking with the brain first. So we will typically treat that with some behavior uh, modification, so uh, potty training, uh, and medicines tend to be a, uh, a first or second line treatment for this type of leakage. If a woman leaks with coughing, sneezing, laughing, running, or jumping, uh, those that's a weak muscle uh, leakage, and that is more commonly treated with uh, things like pelvic exercises or maybe something surgical. Okay. We'll hold that thought. We'll be right back with more information. But now we're from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by AARP Louisiana Neighbors, tenant country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Gary Kaligas will be right back with more Best of Times Radio Hour after this on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Gary's back with more Best of Times Radio Hour on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by AERP Louisiana and Ebear, sending country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is a very special guest, is Dr. Alexander Gomelsky, who is with LSU Oshner Regional Urology here in Shreveport, and he's on our show to discuss the various myths and facts about urological problems, both in men and women. So thank you, doctor, for taking time and joining our show today. You're welcome, Gary. So we're, we're talking a little bit now ab- about incontinence, urinary incontinence. So what is what's what do we need to do? Uh, well, how, how does one diagnose it enough to go need to visit a physician like you? That, that's a good question. I'm sure my listeners are out there. I, I may uh, leak a little bit, a drop. Is that an indication for me to go see a doctor? That's probably the most common question I get asked is, is, is do I need to do something? And what I tell my patients is that, that urinary leakage is a want issue rather than a need issue. Uh, it's not a life-threatening problem. Uh, it, you might die of embarrassment, but you won't die uh, <laughs> from uh, 
having urinary leakage. So the decision to do something is almost always entirely up to the patient themselves. And so we talk a lot about what impact does it have on your quality of life? Is it stopping you from doing the things that you enjoy? Uh, are you s spending so much money on absorbent products that it's putting you in a hole financially? So we talk about those things. And uh, if at some point the patient says, listen, I've had it, I really want my lifestyle better, what can we do? And that's when we talk about doing something active. But until that point, uh, if, a, if a man or woman is doing well and it's not bothersome to them, the volume itself of leakage doesn't, doesn't matter as much. So what is the indication that my bladder has dropped or I need to have in those, those bladder tucks, tack suspensions or whatever they're called, slings? So what are the indications there? And that's another kind of myth, uh, especially especially with women of a certain age. If they underwent some procedure maybe 30 years ago or more, they were told that their bladder was tacked or tucked or suspended. And in some ways, we're not really 100% sure what any of those are, but I kind of have an idea. <laughs> um, but typically... Uh, they had plastic surgery and they moved things around there, right? Exactly. The furniture was rearranged a little bit. Um, the, you know, there are different problems that can affect uh, women in that area and a dropped bladder. So a bladder that is protruding, that is pushing the vaginal wall out where a woman will see a bulge is different from urinary leakage. Uh, they're two separate problems, two separate muscle weakness problems. Women can have both. They can have one. They can have neither. Um, and so bladder tucks uh, were typically procedures that I think were done for a dropped bladder, while bladder tacks or suspensions were done for uh, urinary leakage. Uh, and a woman could have had both, uh, but that's kind of been my detective work through the years. Okay. And the suspensions have kind of gone by the wayside, and slings are more common procedures that we do now for urinary leakage. And and those are and there's a surgery, right? Microsurgery, I'm sure it's not major surgery. Yeah, it's uh, they're typically short procedures. Uh, can often be done under in under half an hour as an outpatient, so day surgery, and uh, it's like putting a, a little rubber band uh, underneath the urine channel, which tightens up when a woman coughs or sneezes and keeps her from leaking. So we're helping out her valve mechanism. Okay, I got to ask, well, yeah. how often do we change the rubber band? Great question. So again, it's not a it's not as elastic as a rubber band, um, <laughs> and the once it heals into the body, the you know the intent is always permanent. Okay. But uh, I do tell women that uh, while it's meant to be a permanent procedure, the body around the sling may change through the years. The tissue may get weaker. Uh, you know, a woman could have other health issues that come up. Weight changes could occur. So the body around it could could change enough where she may redevelop some symptoms. And if that happens, we can reconsider additional options. So okay. even for those women that, that have recurrent symptoms down the line, we always have something we can offer them. But there is also a medication option, right? You, you mentioned it, but you didn't mention it. Is that the first, the, the exercises, the other treatments, but there is also medicines. Then you go into possible surgery. So the medicines are kind of there for a different type of leakage. So oh. uh, so they're for the urge leakage. So again, the urge 
symptoms are when you got to go, got to go, and you can't make it, or you do make it, but you still have the urgency, and that's often called the uh, overactive bladder. Okay. Now, that is something that we can help with medicine. Uh, the leakage with coughing, sneezing is not typically treated with medicine. That's okay. going to be a muscle weakness leakage that will respond to either exercises or something surgical. So the overactive bladder, which we'll talk about. So you diagnose that by having to go more frequently? Exactly. So the by definition, the key symptom there is is urgency. And urgency is, again, is different from an urge. And I know it may seem like semantics, but <laughs> the urgency is is a is a feeling that you can't postpone urination, while an urge is just a de, uh, maybe a, a stronger desire to urinate. So when you have urgency, with or without frequent urination, nighttime urination, or leakage with urgency, then that's considered to be a syndrome, and that's overactive bladder. So tell our listeners, there are people that are prescribed certain medications that make your bladder overactive, correct? For example, blood pressure medicines. Blood pressure medicines can contribute to it. Some of the antidepressants can have effects on the bladder. Um, There are medicines also that will exacerbate bladder symptoms. Think of uh, diuretics. Mm -hmm. Yes. Again, those don't create overactive bladder, but they do make you make more urine for a certain time. So if you already have a sensitive bladder, that increased flow of urine from your kidneys into the bladder will make you go more frequently. Well, between you and me, I think you physicians and other cardiac physicians, when they start prescribing those diuretics, they need to very carefully explain to people that you're going to have increased urine flow. Absolutely. And most of those medicines will work you know, for about six hours. So you can, you can expect that you're going to be going to the bathroom more frequently during those six hours. So, and there's some more powerful diuretics than others. Tell them that. Amen. Amen to that. Yes. Some very, very powerful. And you know, the, we'll see some patients come in and they're, they're getting up several times per night. And when you talk to them, they're taking their diuretic, uh, close to bedtime which means that they're going to have to be getting up at night to pee. So sometimes just a uh, maybe shifting of the time will help a lot of the symptoms as well. So, uh, But yes, uh, the blood pressure medications are notorious uh, for having some bladder symptoms with them. So what other, what other aspect, what other things we can do or you can do for overactive bladder? So we typically, you know, the thought is always you start simple and work your way up from there. Um, especially when you are working with an older population uh, because they, uh, they have, typically they're on more medicines. They may have some other health issues which may interfere, maybe mobility issues. So we'd like to start with the simple stuff, which I call potty training, uh, having them go to the bathroom on a schedule, mainly giving themselves enough time to get up, transfer, get to the bathroom, um, get their uh, underwear down, uh, without it being urgent. Uh, training the bladder, uh, we have several techniques they can do there. Uh, and then we work with their primary care physicians and looking at their medicines, like you mentioned, with their blood pressure medications. There's some swaps we can make sometimes. Um, but we kind of want to take a look at the entire person and see what we can and, achieve and there. In my scenario, sometimes the dosage of the diuretics was way and over beyond the call of duty because, uh, you know... It, it, when you take that much and you don't really need that much, it's a, it's, it's, it's a trial and error aspect, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And, and I defer to the cardiologist or the primary care physician. You know, we work together, but obviously they are uh, a little more uh, adept at, uh, at treating, you know, blood pressure issues and, and the heart and things like that than I am. So I will take their lead on it, but, but we'll communicate about it and kind of work as a team. So what, hap- what do you recommend to a person that says, I have an overactive bladder and I still have to get up uh, three or four times in the night? Yeah. So, you know, so nighttime is interesting. Nighttime is, is a little different than daytime. Um, and so what that means is that there are several things that occur during the night naturally that could make it that a person goes to the bathroom more fre- uh, frequently. Uh, if somebody has lower extremity swelling and fluid accumulating in their legs during the day, when they lay flat, that fluid will shift and it will work its way up to the kidneys or the heart and the kidneys. And then the body will actually, to correct itself, will make that extra fluid into urine. So that's just a normal way the body repairs itself, but as a byproduct, you got to get up and pee. Um, There are some sleep disorders that could cause a a person to make more urine at night as a byproduct. So I'll often call nighttime urination a a body problem rather than a bladder problem. The bladder tends to be often a... uh, uh, an innocent bystander and affected downstream from the actual problem, which may be a heart-related issue or maybe a sleep-related issue. Okay, what about if people... I, I hear more seniors telling me they get up and they're not even taking any diuretic or any blood pressure medicine. They tell them as they age, they tend to get up more at night. And that's common. Again, our sleep pattern is uh, is worse as we get uh, older. Uh, we, we don't sleep as soundly. Um, so you know, some of those things, again, if we, uh, if we think somebody snores and there's a concern for sleep apnea, that's one condition that could be related to overproducing urine at night. So we may look for a sleep study or something else to help diagnose that. But we'll often start with simple things. You know, don't drink before bedtime. Uh, it kind of seems intuitive, but, uh, <laughs> but you would be amazed at how many people keep a bottle of water on their nightstand and, oh, yes. Oh, yes. and sip on it through the night or drink right up until bedtime. They lay in bed watching TV and they'll sip on a bottle for two hours before they, you know, before they turn off the light. And uh, having and having a, a an alcoholic toddy at like at, right before sleep does <laughs> it, it acts as a diuretic, doesn't it? Alcohol could certainly have that impact as well. So uh, if they have a couple glasses of wine right before bedtime, uh, they, if the, that could have a, a different effect on the bladder. So. so, what I want to also mention, it could be an indication you because you told me this many years ago when I saw you come a couple of things, uh, an indication you may be having a kidney stone. Right when you get up more frequently, your 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 body's trying to flush it out naturally, and you get some pain. But uh, for myself, I tended to urinate more, trying to flush it out. My body was in a defensive mode. It, you know, uh, just when a kidney stone is ready to pass, when it's kind of trapped in that last portion of the ure, uh, ureter, which is the tube that connects the kidney to the bladder, and the bladder, it can actually make you go to the bathroom more frequently. So. Uh, but typically, you know, that'll be preceded by some pain and things like that, you know, kind of classic kidney stone pain. So tell our listeners, though, so getting up frequently may not be a, a major problem, but it could be. It could be. Uh, and the biggest thing we're concerned about, obviously, is that, you know, trying to get up at night to use the restroom in the dark uh, increases your chance of falling. And uh, that's been shown to be 
uh, a big problem. And so we we want to keep uh, want to keep everybody healthy. And, uh, and hopefully they have night lights or some kind of tracking to get you to the bathroom. And even if you're in a hotel room, and you know Gary does that, he makes sure he knows the path in case he has to get up at night. And there's a a small night light or whatever, so I don't you know you don't trip and fall. Which those kind of precaution absolutely and true. We'll hold that thought. We'll be right back with more information. But now we're with my sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour. You're on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by AARP Louisiana Neighbors, Sending Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Gary Kaligas will be right back with more Best of Times Radio Hour after this on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Gary's back with more Best of Times Radio Hour on 1017 FM and 710 Q. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by AERP Louisiana Neighbors, tenant country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is a very special guest, is Dr. Alexander Gomeltsky, who is with LSU Ostner Regional Urology here in Shreveport. He's been giving us some interesting information about urological problems, both in men and women. So we talk, we're going to talk a little bit about underactive bladder is as a result of what possibilities? Yeah, so this is uh, this is something that is increasingly common. Uh, in it can happen in men and women, but we're really going to kind of shift focus a little bit to the men uh, in this point. So think about the the way to empty the bladder best is you need the bladder to pump, so it needs to squeeze the urine, and the channel needs to be opened, so the 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 valve that keeps a person dry gives them urinary control has to relax at the appropriate time and the channel has to be free of blockage which is kind of maybe kind of where the prostate comes in and if you have all three of those things you have a channel that's not unblocked the valve relaxes and the bladder squeezes appropriately then they should be able to empty their bladder well and completely so we've talked about an overactive bladder where maybe the bladder squeezes too much but the valve will open and and empty the bladder each time, but maybe they go more frequently. Mm-hmm. An underactive bladder is where the pump doesn't work very well. So where basically the bladder either doesn't squeeze hard enough or can't squeeze at all. And this can happen, this typically doesn't happen just all of a sudden. It uh, will happen either with some sort of neurologic problem, maybe a spinal cord injury, uh, maybe a pre, sometimes some previous spinal surgery, like a disc surgery. But we do see it increasingly more and more in older men when they've had maybe an enlarged prostate for a long time. Uh, essentially, the prostate will block the urine channel, and the bladder for a while will actually squeeze harder, and it will overcome that blockage. Mm-hmm. And I do find that men tend to be stubborn, and they don't enjoy <laughs> going to doctors, especially urologists, and they <laughs> may postpone their symptoms or going to see a doctor until something kind of gives. Well, I, I, the gives being they're gonna, their, their bladder is going to be full and full that uh, they're about to explode. They can't they, you know, have him pee doctor in two days or something like that, right? We've seen that absolutely, where somebody will come in and you can, and especially if they're a thin guy, you can do an exam and you'll feel their bladder up at their navel. 
Wow. Uh, and then you empty them out after with a couple of liters uh, of urine, and a typical bladder will hold about a quarter of that. So it's um, uh, we do see that periodically, but it, it, it most of the time it's sort of a more subtle uh, presentation. They'll have a, a weaker stream, uh, maybe some hesitancy, uh, maybe stopping and starting, and then. Over time, if untreated, it could end up in, uh, kind of like Gary said, in full-blown urinary retention. Mm. Okay, let, let's talk about the men's situation, because I know a lot of people have prostate enlargement. So what's what's the indication there? And, and we still do the same procedure to test that each and every year or so, right, Doc? Well, it's a great question. So uh, Gary's talking about the, what used to be called the finger wave or the, yeah. uh, you know, the, uh, we call it a digital rectal exam where you put your index finger and, and, and check the, the, the prostate in men. So I could it, not believe after all this medical years that medical science had not been able to figure out a better way to do this. <laughs> I even told my, my uh, internist doctor, you know, Everything else is high-tech and improving. Why can't you all improve this one, right? It's simple. But you teach all your medical students. Everybody has to do that, right? It, it is. And, and you know, it serves a, a couple of purposes. So interestingly enough, so the, the exam is really meant to, to give you two things. Uh, number one is it, you can maybe estimate the prostate size a little bit from the exam. Really? Which, uh, again, every urologist has their own kind of... Um, uh, patented, trademarked way of estimating <laughs> prostate size, and each urologist is uh, different. Um, so, but it can give you a little bit of an idea about how big of a prostate you're dealing with, which may uh, point you towards a, a particular type of treatment down the line. Okay. But the main reason we're doing that test is actually we're we're feeling the edge of the prostate where cancer is most likely to develop. Oh. So what we're never, look- They never told me that. Okay, thank, glad you ex- explained that to me. Because uh, prostate enlargement happens on the inside of the prostate, which we can't feel, but prostate cancer will develop in the periphery of it, which we can feel with our fingers. So if we feel a little irregularity there or a little hard area, that might uh, give us some additional information. But but we are at least checking for prostate cancer. We are relying more and more on blood work. So So tell our listeners, many of the men out there get various tests it's a PSA test, right? Is that what it's called? Yes, sir. And that's still the gold standard. Still is, um, and it it has its uh, it has its pluses, it has its minuses, but it's still the the best test we have uh, to screen a man for prostate cancer. And screening just means that we are dealing with men who have no symptoms, and we're doing a blood test to estimate their risk of potentially having a, a prostate cancer that's not clinically apparent yet so the psa tells you as a physician what about the patient so it's basically psa is prostate specific antigen and it's a substance that every man's prostate makes typically in very small amounts so it will leach into the blood and you can do a blood test for it and if the number is very low you are assured that the prostate is calm If the number is higher than we would expect, then prostate enlargement could cause it, uh, prostate infection or swelling can do it, and also cancer can cause that number to be higher than expected. And that might 
prompt us to get additional testing. So the treatment of prostate enlargement or possible cancer, what's the, the treatments have improved over the many years, correct? Absolutely. So again, prostate enlargement is just something that men will experience as they get older. It's kind of like death and taxes. <laughs> um, and not all prostate enlargement is symptomatic. But when it gets to be symptomatic, causing, you know, the stopping and starting stream, poor emptying, we can either relax the valve or treat or shrink the prostate with medicines. And then if those are not effective, there are different surgical procedures for that, uh, which can be minimally invasive or more invasive. Uh, We have a whole list of them. Um, For cancer, obviously, that's a a whole different story because now we're dealing with potentially a life-threatening problem. So we're looking at different things to actually treat the cancer, whether it's with radiation or surgery, sometimes with just observing it. But there definitely there's a, a lot of uh, brand new technology out so, there. So, Doc, radiation's used all the time, or it, most of the time it just goes directly to surgery? Uh, no, it, it's going to vary by the, the gentleman, their, their, uh, the aggressiveness of their cancer. Uh, so their, the PSA is important, the, the patient's uh, the, the biopsy results are important, their uh, activity status, their age, their family history, all of that is kind of taken into account to gauge how... Uh, aggressive that cancer is, and then treatment will be directed based on that aggressiveness. Well, thank you again for taking time. Your your information was very educational for me, and I know for my many thousands of listeners out there. So if they need to get a hold of you in your, in your office, in your clinic, what's the phone number? Uh, 683-0411. Say that again? 683-0411. And you are with uh, Regional Urology located, that's where your new offices are? It's, uh, yes, uh, they are at Regional Urology and uh, also at the uh, Oshner LSU Academic Medical Center. That's right. I forgot to mention that to our listener. He's still on the faculty, the head of urology, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's fantastic, teaching our medical students there to become great uh, physicians throughout the world. Again, thank you, Doc, for joining us today. Again, best of luck to you. Thank you, Gary. Great to be here. Don't forget to pick up your personal copy of The Best of Times at one of our 270 distribution locations. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you again for listening to our show. I'm Gary Caligas wishing you and yours the best of times, both today and every day. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Be sure and tune in next Saturday at 9 a.m. for more Best of Times. This is 1017 FM and 710 Keel.